episode eight of the Analytically Speaking podcast. I'm Dwight Stoll, professor of chemistry at Gustavus Adolphus College and your podcast host. In this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Mary Ellen McNally, Global Research and Development Fellow at FMC Corporation, where she is based in Newark, Delaware. Dr. McNally is an expert in chromatography and related technologies, and I'm thrilled that she's able to join me for a conversation today. So far with the podcast, we've had three episodes focused on separation science. Two of these have been with academic researchers and one researcher from industry. And so I'm happy that we can continue to broaden the conversation today by hearing about uh, Mary Ellen's work and also her thoughts about challenges and needs in the separation science field, and also a little bit of advice to, to aspiring scientists. So Mary Ellen, thanks for joining me today for episode eight of the podcast, which is now that will be the fourth episode focused on separation science. Well, thank you, Dwight. It's really a pleasure to be here today, and thanks for the nice introduction. So, it's exciting that we're going to have podcasts about analytical chemistry yeah, and chromatography. Yeah. It's an exciting right. topic. So, before we get into talking about your science, I just want to share a little little bit of your background with our listeners to just to give them a sense for the experiences and perspective you bring to the conversation. So. You did your bachelor's studies in chemistry at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, finishing there in 1976, and then moved to uh, Villanova University, where you received both master's and doctoral degrees in analytical chemistry, finishing the PhD with uh, Bob Grobe in 1983. And then as a final educational stop, you did a short postdoc at the University of Georgia. I know that you're gonna talk more later in the conversation about how you got into industry, and I think this is a really great story, so I'm gonna let you tell that part. Uh, but you've spent your entire working career in industry, mostly with DuPont and then with FMC Corporation since 2017. Your advancement through the ranks over the years has been very impressive, with the most recent promotion to FMC Fellow in April of 2022. And in addition to your accomplishments in the context of your day job, I especially want to highlight your, your highly varied and extensive contributions to, let's say, the community or a variety of professional organizations, including the editorial board of LCGC Magazine and your extensive contributions to the functioning of the Eastern Analytical Symposium, known as EAS for short, over many years. And, and finally, your work has been recognized with several awards, including the EAS Award for Outstanding Achievements in Separation Science uh, very recently in 2021. And now before I mostly turn the microphone to you, I just want to say how much of a treat it is to have you here on the podcast because I've known you since I was a young chromatographic boy. <laughs> and uh, I've always been impressed really with talking people in the community, how highly regarded you are uh, amongst our peers in the community. And you've also been, also been very kind to me in terms of offering encouragement during my formative years, um, I think I think you know how impactful those can be. So I've really appreciated that uh, over the time. So, did I get all the all the details right there? Oh well, that's great. Thank you very much. That was very very sweet of you to say all that. Yeah. Okay. Great. So um, now to get into to, to to hear from you. So during the pandemic, I listened to many science podcasts, as I I think a lot of us did, and I always been intrigued to hear about. One of the things I like about this format is I think it, we have a chance to hear about the people, you know, behind the science. And I think for me, it's been really interesting to hear about early career defining events of different people. So what events do you point to in your background that really increased your interest in science in general? 
That was an interesting question for me because, um, you know, I went to an all-girls uh, school for high school, and there were about 30 women in my junior chemistry class. And we had a really passionate teacher, a nun, who taught the chemistry class. And uh, five of us out of the 30 went on to become chem majors, which I'm mm. sure is a, a really great average for, yeah. for a high school chemistry class. Mm. And she did an excellent job of sharing her passion with them. And I remember her lectures were really vibrant and colorful and, and uh, fascinating. So I think that was the first spark in chemistry that I had. Okay. Great. And when did you become really interested in separation science specifically? I know for me, it was, I can point to a very, pretty narrow window of time when, <laughs> when my attention really changed. So um, what, what factors do you, you know, where is that point in time for you or, or what were the sort of the key factors, do you think? I think, well, it's interesting because originally I did not plan to go to graduate school. Um, the first job I had after I was an undergrad was uh, as a, a safety engineer for an insurance company mm. so we're science related. And then uh, my first exposure to chromatography was with the second job I had after undergraduate because I had taken the state test to um, be a chemist in the state of Pennsylvania. Um, right when I graduated uh, as an undergrad. And what happened was it took them greater than nine months to grade the test, which is why I had taken the, the safety engineer job. Mm. And it turned out I was second in the state and I got to choose the job I wanted from a list after the guy who came in first chose his job. Mm. And so um, I took a job, which was relatively close to my home at the, uh, what's the now non-existent Liberty Bell racetrack. And mm. so I tested horse blood and urine for drugs to see if the horses were clean. So we worked in a lab right next to the track and the guards drove us down to the lab building every day to make sure we didn't talk to any of the owners, the jockeys or anyone else that might try to influence our, our testing answers. And uh, the routine tests we conducted were GC and TLC for doping drugs. And at the time, we mostly measured um, for phenobarbital, because if it was a claims race, the horse was allowed to have that phenobarbital in their system, and then they knew they were taking something to relieve the pain, but it had to be declared. So we confirmed it was present or it wasn't present. So it was a fun job for a short amount of time, but it was very, very routine. And, and um I will admit it was kind of smelly too. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> so, um, after a few months, I applied to Villanova because it was close to my home, and I entered I entered graduate school thinking I was going to be a synthetic organic chemist. Um, but I was having trouble deciding who my major professor was. So uh, my parents' next door neighbor was a civil engineering professor at Villanova, and he had suggested to me that I should choose the person I work for and not the area because I likely wouldn't be working in that area uh, in my whole career anyway. And so um, he said, but your major professor will be a significant person in your life. And so that was excellent advice. Uh, part of it was wrong because I am still doing chromatography. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, uh, I, 
I am still doing um, not the same work I did in graduate school, but certainly the same field. But I chose Bob Grobe. He was a well-known and well-respected chromatographer, and he was actually an excellent uh, mentor. And so that worked out quite well. That's great. So that's a, that's a great story. Um, you know, these these it seems like there's very often this like uh, we refer to them here as hallway conversations. You know, like the conversation with your neighbor. This little what seems like a little piece of advice actually has a huge influence, right? So yeah, I think that's one of been, been one of the things I've learned as an educator. It's like you never know what the impact of a, just a very short conversation can be, and and I think I always have to be sort of thinking, well, this this actually could be very influential for this person. So take the time to you know try to try to do the right thing. Right, and it might be a conversation you don't even remember. Yeah, right. Well, that's that's definitely true these days. Uh, okay, so um, I think the other thing that would be helpful at this point is for you to just talk really briefly about kind of what is the scope of the business for your employer, FMC? Like FMC, what do they what do they do? What do you do? So FMC. Um, so in 2017, FMC Corporation bought the crop protection um, division of uh, Dupont. And so they acquired myself and about 600 other scientists at the same time when they did that. And so um, they were in the crop protection business, but they had, uh, FMC had chosen in the early 2000s to um, disband their R of the R&D component. And they were mm. just really doing development and had kind of fully developed everything they could that they had left over in the pipeline and and we're really on the verge of becoming a generic um, mm. agricultural company so um when the merger of uh, dow and dupont happened in 2017 dupont crop protection uh, was for sale and we were purchased very rapidly by fmc which you know for such a huge purchase you know is significant so you know i'm sure they were watching out for that type of a thing but so we um we develop um molecules that 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 are um found and discovered here i work at the stein site in newark delaware and so um the discovery chemistry is just the next building over and uh, you know I'm on the development side so we take a molecule right when it comes out of uh, discovery and um, we do all the studies that are necessary to um, submit for registration to uh, countries around the world so every country has the equivalent of what we know the EPA to be and so their requirements might vary. You know, the EU, of course, is consolidated except for for uh, Great Britain, and but and so there are there are some significant significant countries around the um, around the globe that we target, that and we try to uh, gear our studies to um, the ones that have the most uh, stringent requirements. And that would be the EU, the US, Brazil, Japan. Mm -hmm. Okay. So great. And so uh, in the sort of the the format of the conversations here, what I've been trying to do is um, for, for the bulk of the discussion, kind of pick a an area or topic of current interest. 
um, that you'd like to talk about. And so in our exchange prior to, to the conversation today, you highlighted the area of counterfeit analysis as something that you're uh, deeply involved in and, and also an area where there are significant technical needs. Um, so I, I certainly uh, was aware of the counterfeit issue in, in the pharmaceutical arena, but wasn't so aware of the topic in, in your area. So I'm su super interested to hear about this. So let's let's get into this. So I guess the first question is why why is this uh, problem important, or can you just talk about the the uh, sort of the scope or the scale of the problem, and also how did you kind of get into this research area? Right, right, right. So I guess the um, the scope is is uh, almost unbelievable even to me. But the counterfeit uh, analysis is out of necessity. So it turns out that in some areas of the world, uh, the which are primarily agricultural areas, agricultural products are more valuable than even drugs on the street. Mm -hmm. And so what you find is that, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of underground networks where, you know, compounds that are still under patent are, you know, being made illegally and um, being shipped internationally. Mm -hmm. And these um, compounds, they may or may not be what they say they are, mm -hmm. okay? And even if they are the active ingredient that, that they say they are, they're, they're not made to the standards that, mm -hmm. you know, is required by the regulatory bodies. So the agricultural chemical industry is, is a regulated industry, just like the pharma industry is. And as you can imagine, it ends up in our food chains, both for animals and for and for us. And so, you know, you have to be very careful about uh, what's being applied, what's what's residual. And those are all the studies that um, we go through in order to uh, determine whether an active ingredient can be um, been, be sold. So we do testing in metabolism, environmental fate, residue analysis, toxicology to determine that the products we do develop are and sell are safe for animals and humans and to can uh, who will consume the food that is generated from the crops that are treated so uh, it takes a long time to do this just as it does to develop a pharmaceutical right you know so it could be seven or ten years which is a huge percentage of the patent lifetime and so um, we have to try to uh, protect this um, so counterfeit and illegal products, uh, they infringe on our patents, but they, um, they don't make the registration specifications. So we, we make our products to meet specifications every single time. So, and, and that's part of the role that I have is to develop those specifications for um, new active ingredients. So we, we have, a whole synthesis and uh, process development group that develops the most efficient and cost-effective and most um, toxicologically safe material. And we're able to uh, identify and test everything that's present in that material um, down to 0.05 weight percent. So there's a lot of uh, identification in, in what we do. Uh, generally, we're required by um, these regulatory bodies to uh, report levels that are 
0.1 weight percent and above, as long as something is not toxicologically relevant. So the initial rigorous registration studies that we do um, and are conducted on legitimate material are not done on this counterfeit material. So it can be damaging to the efficacy of the product because we don't want it to be applied where, um, where it might be overused and then make the effectiveness of the product not as good in the long term. And then farmers manage, um, they manage their crop protection products so that they can obtain long-term efficacy and overuse can reduce the overall efficacy for years. So some of these products, um, now I, I, I know they might not be popular, but um, some of these products are, are really very environmentally safe and toxicologically uh, have no mammalian effects. So that that the uh, and we want to support that in everything that's related to the active ingredients that we sell. Sure. Yeah. So this is very interesting. I mean, it, it all kind of makes sense when you explain it. But I, you know, this is sort of. Uh at least for me, providing insight into a part of the world that I, I just wasn't familiar with. So uh, very interesting. So um, when you think back, uh, you know, on this on the scale of um, many years, how would you how would you describe how you sort of got into this area? I mean, is this sort of this just sort of the the um, part of the company you were working in, or how did how did you get into this uh, specifically? So I've always been involved in the development of new products ever since, um, you know, I started in this industry and it, it's exciting, but each new molecule brings its own challenges. It's different chemistry, you know, some might be chiral, some have stability issues, you know, but um, one of the products I was responsible for had a huge effect on, on the pest and um, we were starting to see and it and it was being advertised before we actually got the approvals and it was marketed. So we started to see counterfeit material in the marketplace before we even received these regulatory approvals. And so it became uh, necessary to introduce and execute an, an, an effective anti-counterfeit campaign. Mm. And that was about 15 years ago. Wow. So... Um, it's a billion, it's a billion dollar product. It makes about mm -hmm. a billion dollars a year. So, but you know, when we have counterfeiting, um, we know that it it affects about ten to twenty percent of sales. So that's huge. Wow. Yeah. You know. So. Right. So, so really you know, that's how you get involved. So you have to try to um, determine the best way to prove that it is counterfeit material and it's not authentic mm -hmm. right yeah 10 to 20 percent that's that's amazing so you really have to have a an entire team uh really dedicated to this effort yeah. mm -hmm. okay and so uh what since you've been working on this for a while what would you say are some of the major advances that you've seen in this area in the in the recent history maybe let's say five years or so something like that you know the counterfeiters are are very clever <laughs> <laughs> they're mm -hmm. really smart and you know but they're crooked <laughs> so um and some of them have very large scale operations and some are very small um they're in the business of 
of making agrochemicals to make a profit, which certainly has some upfront costs, although they are not following regulations in manufacturing either from, from some of the pictures I've seen from um, some of the um, police raids of the facilities show that, that it's really deplorable. But um, but they don't want to get caught, and I get that. Therefore, you know, sometimes we find they clean up the material, so it's difficult for us to determine what route they've used to manufacture or uh, the illegal or counterfeit material. So uh, so we have to use low-level detection for to examine what what they produce and determine the route that they have used. And so I think they have analytical capabilities. At some of the facilities, I don't think they have the analytical capabilities to the level that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and I think that um, they're not manufacturing to any specification. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So they're just getting product out the door. Sure. So what what do we see? You know, we see things um, that have been diluted with water. So mm-hmm. maybe they bought authentic product and just mm-hmm. diluted it mm-hmm. um, or some other solvent. We see where they um, have mixed other products in instead mm-hmm. of the active ingredient that's on the label. Mm-hmm. We've seen a, a lot of things where, um, and, and obviously they, they do some synthesis, but you know, the routes are not the same, the solvents aren't the same. Mm-hmm. And so we can only predict that the toxicity of what they're producing is uh, likely not the same either and hasn't been tested. Right, right. Okay. And what about, uh, again, in this area, are there particular trends uh, that you see developing or, you know, as you try to sort of imagine what we'll see in the future, what, what kind of developments do you think there will be in this area? Well, certainly this issue is not going to go away, you know, because I don't think uh, illegal drugs are going away either, right? Mm-hmm. But, um, and I think a lot of cases they do reverse engineering where they take our products and take it apart. So, you know, you have to think of this in terms of they have the active ingredient, but we don't sell the active ingredient to a except to other manufacturers, what is actually good sold on the market is a formulated product. Mm-hmm. So the formulation ingredients are some very complex things. And so what happens is the analytical and counterfeiting labs receive a sample from the inter- internet or for some undercover purchase that takes place over the internet. Uh, the sample is made with unknown formulating ingredients, so it's very difficult to figure out what the background is because we don't know that. And these these uh, ingredients are, are complicated things, lignins, clays, acids, stabilizers, binders, all that, antifoams, um, even xanthan gum. And so the analysis of these additive ingredients is difficult when they're known. When they're not known, it's even more complicated, right? So you have Mm -hmm. to, in the process of doing this reverse engineering, you have to try to figure out what these um, formulating ingredients were that were engineered and, or that were used and try to eliminate them by solvent extraction or some other type of uh, maybe 2D chromatography to try to figure out what actually was there and 
what the active ingredient was or what the impurities are and whether they can they can be um, identified. Okay. One of the things that I'm hoping for comes out of these these podcast conversations is more of a sort of a just a conversation about you know where where are some gaps in separation science research in a general sense you know people like yourself telling us well we we really have big needs here and then like myself oh well it looks like a good opportunity so one of the questions I asked you um, in our exchange was if you had a magic wand what would you it for and you commented that you would try to address the analysis of formulating agents so that kind of caught my attention and so my my question is i mean because that's not on my radar research wise i just don't see much about it so do you think there's kind of a a gap there or i mean do we need well i think there's a there's a i think there's a huge gap i think the gap is going to go away and i think it's going to go away because there's been some regulations that have been um, accepted and published in the EU saying that formulating ingredients should be identified and quantified in samples. Mm -hmm. So, you know, prior to this, we certainly identified what was in our samples, all right? Mm -hmm. But it might have just been a list because we bought these formulating ingredients from suppliers and we would include the lists in our registration package. But certainly we, and you know, it would be more on a bulk nature that it was quantified. So, you know, if it was 30% of the formulation that we would say that, but um, it was not quantified from an analytical perspective, mm-hmm. all right? So um, the regulation came into place, I forget the date, a couple years ago and um, nobody was executing it Mm. because they weren't prepared Mm -hmm. right and so um and so the regulatory laboratories of of each country they're working on it and and the the um, companies such as fmc are also working in that area and you know progress will be made but it's um and I will say to you, in, in when we did uh, a literature search for those basic areas of formulating ingredients that I listed before, there are analysis that are available for each one of those type of compounds. Mm-hmm. But none of them are trivial. Mm-hmm. And as a, and as a, a full complement of analyzing um, a product, not just the active ingredient, but as a product, what we've been regulated so far is, is the amount of active ingredient that you say is on the label, is that how much is there? Hmm. And there's specifications given by the FAO and by EPA that says, you know, the error that's tolerated for the percentage of active ingredient based on how much is in the whole. Mm-hmm. Okay. But, um, we haven't been regulated on checking and verifying the formulation ingredients up until now. Mm-hmm. So it looks like that's going to change in the EU, maybe because of all this full disclosure that EFSA is going through. But um, I think that it's a huge analytical challenge. Mm-hmm. All right. And certainly you can look at an analytical profile by FTIR 
of the full spectrum of a um, of a uh, of a product, and you can say, well, this spectrum doesn't match this spectrum, but there's variability associated with these formulation ingredients that we purchase. Mm -hmm. There's variability in the lignans. There's variability in the clays. We might not even know what that is. That's from the supplier of the formulating ingredient. Mm -hmm. So it's a huge, huge, huge task to try to rein this all in and start to quantify these. Mm -hmm. Now, have the regulators been really strict up until this point about meeting this requirement? Not yet, but I'm sure it's coming, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And, you know, I think there has to be some... Uh, there has to be some developments looking at these samples, which are very complicated in a way that, that uh, simplifies the analysis. And we don't have to do 30 different tests for each formulated product to say right. that we're in specification, mm -hmm. right? I don't know what's required in the pharmaceutical industry about the excipients or the formulating ingredients. I don't know what's required. So I'm sure they have, I mean, there are lists that are published that say these are acceptable ingredients and these are not, and that's pretty standard. Mm -hmm. But asking for a quantitation of the ones that are on the approved list is, is a, it's a paradigm shift mm -hmm. in what we're trying to do. Right. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, great. So I, I, if we're done with that uh, part of the conversation, I want to shift gears. Is there anything else you want to want to sort of add to that before we move on? Okay. Okay. So uh, the other sort of main thing I try to address in these conversations is, um, so we, we, we sort of talked about a piece of your work um, that you think is important and, and trends and things like that. But I also want to talk a little bit about things that we see going on in the literature and conferences. And so um, in our exchange of, about this piece of the conversation, you highlighted the topic of sustainability. So um, why don't you just share your thoughts with us about sort of what you see going on and, and, and why it's important and how it's going to impact our, our work going forward here. You know, you and I have talked about this, but, you know, every major corporation has a sustainability goal with the timeline. And uh, the solvents that we use in chromatography and in the lab are minuscule compared to what's used in manufacturing. But when the goal is zero, everything needs to be taken into account. So, the work uh, Mike Hickstad uh, has done from Merck and the ACS Green Chemistry Institute roundtable contributors are in the, all the work they're doing is really important. And um, these fo folks um, have developed the analytical method greenness score, which has at its core the AMVI or the analytical method volume index. So a lot, a lot of new acronyms to remember, mm -hmm. but the mm -hmm. uh, analytical method greenness score, the AMGS and the AMVI, um, they were in a paper from 2011 and another paper in 2019. So in my mind, there's absolutely no reason why every method published does not include these scores. I mean, all, all the ACS journals should require them. They're, they're the, they have the huge uh, green chemistry initiative. But the AMVI gives the user direct measure of just how green the method they are using is in terms of solvents and how slight changes in sample prep where, you know, you might, uh, instead of diluting uh, 10 into 100 milliliters, you might dilute one into 10 milliliters. Mm -hmm. um, 
some slight changes in sample prep, which would give you the same result of what you're actually going to uh, inject in your chromatographic system, um, or change in flow rate affects the score. And so the lower the score, the better. Um, the the analytical method greenness score also measures um, beyond solvent consumption, and it talks about the environmental assessment and the in energy consumption and the instrument and operation time. And so all those are taken into account. And they actually uh, measured the voltage used at the back of their instruments to see what the drain was. So it's something that you know, if you have a zero footprint, it means that, you know, energy and, and energy out is going to be zero. So, you know, it's, it, we have to think about those type of things. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of work going on in this area. Um, my hope is in the near future, um, poor scores in AMVI and AM. Um, GS will eliminate technologies that cannot compete in the sustainability arena. But, you know, as we talked before, this doesn't happen overnight because we're committed to the instrumentation that we have now. Mm -hmm. So um, we're going to have to do a paradigm shift on uh, how we do things and what's accepted. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, the other thing I'd like to hear your thought on here is, so um you know the the maybe superficial way of thinking about greenness i think around chromatography is just um the volume of the operation so i i think to me it's still fascinating to talk to the call manufacturers who will tell you that the best selling products are still 4.6 millimeter columns <laughs> and so there's obviously an opportunity there but also other other opportunities in terms of solvent type and also other parts of the operation um, reading through those papers you you just talked about, you know, they talk about just sim what seemingly simple things like having the instruments go to sleep, uh, in quotes. So where do you think is the sort of the low-hanging fruit? I mean, like you said, in the long run, we need to consider everything. But I mean, <clears throat> from the point of not worrying about it at all or not thinking about it sort of in the front of our minds, where do you mm -hmm. see uh, some of the low-hanging fruit, do you think? Yeah, the the... the... Probably the low-hanging fruit, especially in LC, is is just um, the mobile phase. You know, the the classic 4.6 column, two millimeters a minute. You know, mm -hmm. and you're yeah. generating gallons of waste, which you know then has to be carted off or incinerated. So you know, so there's a lot of handling with that. You know, um, I think supercritical fluids, especially for prep scale, you know, is low low-hanging fruit because you know that's a carboy that's not a a uh, four liter container but that's a carboy of solvent that's used right. every night to to do that type of thing um I, I think that's one of the things i think it's just thinking about things i mean you know when i um when I started in the lab and we had to clean up samples, we thought nothing of diluting something a hundred to a liter, you know? Wow. And yeah. so, and, and we rarely, rarely do that anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, as long as we can um, keep the precision associated with the measurement the same as we reduce volumes, I think we're fine. So it doesn't, so it means somebody's gonna have to be trained to do that. You know, mm -hmm. and we published a couple of papers in LCGC 
uh, probably a decade or so ago about, you know, what things in preparing samples actually affected your precision, mm -hmm. you know? So, um, and those are things that you need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. Great. All right, so uh, thanks for those thoughts on the sustainability. Um, the next uh, sort of piece of thinking here is um, interested to hear your thoughts on sort of picking one or two or three challenges. I mean, we've kind of touched on some of these already, but uh, one or two or three challenges in separation science that you think will be especially important here in the next uh, few years. What do you think about that? Yeah, so um, I think the greatest challenge is lowering detection limits in complicated samples. We're, we're faced with that challenge, if not daily, weekly. And um, part of it is, I think, because, you know, we see in the literature, oh, we measured femtomoles or atomoles or something like that, but there was nothing else around when they measured those, right, right. you know. So the, the real test is of your detection limit is how complicated of a sample is it? So you have to have that selective detection, you know, as well. And um, a lot of times what we see is that, um, the interfering substances are very similar to what we're trying to measure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we like to think that mass spec detection is the one and we're only gonna get one one ion if we do um, <clears throat> SIM, but that's not always the case, right? Or MRM, whatever you wanna call it. But mm -hmm. so, so I think the combination of selective detection and lowering detection in complicated samples is one of the things that I think is going to be a really big challenge in, in the future years. I think selective automated sample preparation is also, I mean, we've seen some of that over the last 15 or 20 years to have automated sample preparation, but I think making it routine and being able to dial in, you know, it's say, you know, let's let's pick a polarity and say, you know, I want to extract everything from this sample that has a polarity range of, 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 of a certain value and whether you equate it to solvents or something else. If you could do that, I think that would make um, selective sample preparation. I, would, I think it would make things a lot of easier, a lot easier for a lot of people. So I think in terms of sample preparation, in terms of extracting an analyte or a group of analytes from a particular matrix, we still do that in a very gross manner. We don't do that in a really selective manner. So sure. I think that's one of the things that we could do. And then we talked about sustainable separations. I think that's something that we're gonna see happen out of necessity. Right. You know? Yep. Yeah. Okay, great. So uh, we're, we're, we're approaching the end here. And what I'd like to do at the at to, to close things out is kind of do some uh, one of the people in other podcasts refer to as quick hits, um, <laughs> uh, more quick comments. So, uh, you know, I had a little back and forth on this, and I'm just going to go through these quick here. So I guess the first one um, is I had asked you, what is a great paper that you think people should read? And here you highlighted the two that you referred to earlier <clears throat> on the um, the greenness uh, score. And so um, we'll put those, uh, we have show notes that go along with these uh, podcasts. And so we'll, I'll, I'll put the references in the, in the show notes and people who are interested in 
following up with those articles can go look at them there. Um, but then uh, a few quick ones. So uh, what would you say is the best analytical advice uh, ever given to you? Hmm. Yeah, make sure you can repeat yourself more than once. You know, I think that's true. I mean, I think there's a lot of papers out in the literature with one time thing and nobody and people say, oh, I can't reproduce these results from this paper. So whether it was an incomplete reporting or they only did it once and, you know, it was a fluke. But I think, you know, repeatability is extremely important. So I think that's probably the best advice. Okay. And then uh, more, I guess, um, uh, sort of career related, what's a, what's a critical piece of advice that you would give to any aspiring analytical chemist? That's pretty easy. I say do what you love, you know. I mean, I love my career, but it is a job. You know, and so it, yeah. it's you, you have to do what you love to make it less of a job, you know, so it's more fun. And I, I'm a people person, so I prefer to stay connected with people that are active in the field. And that's an easier way, I think, to stay on top of things because you'll find what they're working on. And then because you've talked to them about it, you'll go read their papers and, right. you know. As opposed to, you know, well, you review papers and, and, and you learn from that. But I think when you're directly connected to the people that you're writing the paper, paper you, you'd like to, you want to say, oh, okay, how did they do that? You know, mm -hmm. so I find that the, the best part is to stay connected with people and try to follow their research and the direction that they're going. Okay, great. And then uh, the, the last one of these quick ones here uh, is, is my favorite one in the list here because I really love your response. So imagine you have an unlimited budget to draft your dream team or, or dream <laughs> research team. Who would you hire? <laughs> and I said I would hire the smartest people I could find. <laughs> and I, I said I would prefer they had their PhDs only because then I know they know how to complete a project and write it up. There's a lot of smart people without their PhDs and in no way do I want to put them down. But I want to kind of have some kind of assurance that they know how to handle a project, finish a project and write it up and, you know, say that it's done. And I think... You know, that's one of the things that you get from, from uh, going to school. But, you know, it's a lot easier to train smart people. Yeah, so part of what I really love about that response is the, the idea of um, how to complete the project and and, and talk about it or, or communicate it, right? So um, to me, this is sort of related to the conversations I have with students all the time. Like when, when you're young, you don't know what the PhD is about. And I think your your answer here is a uh, is sort of one way of looking at what the PhD is about and sort of what you walk away with. Um, Pete Carr, who you know, said this is a this degree is in science, not in 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 chemistry so much. So it's it's more of a sort of a broader idea. That's very true, and I think it's also a, a matter of, especially in industry, you're not going to spend your life on one thing it's let's solve this problem finish it communicate what has to be done on next problem it's what i like about industry you know but you know there is an end you know right it's not a it's not a forever thing yeah 
Okay, great. Well, uh, this has been a lot of fun. It's time to wrap up here. So, Marilyn, thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Really appreciated hearing your perspective on on some of the things we talked about, and also some uh, uh, some of the big challenges and also opportunities lying in front of us in the near future. It's really great to just um, ha- have your perspective, uh, having all the experiences that you've had. It's been really great. Oh, thanks, thanks, thanks very much. It's been fun.